Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City Online. My name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of our community. So I have three sons, ages nine, eight, and six, and they are all about some baseball right now. Now, I was not a baseball guy growing up. I did my best to try to make us a soccer family, but I lost. But that's fine. Whatever my boys are into, I'm going to back them and be about whatever they're learning, whatever they're into. But that being said, I'm learning the game of baseball with them. And what strikes me about the sport is just how much of it is a confidence thing, especially hitting. Like there's some kids that can just crush the ball in practice and batting cages, but then you get in the game and they start to struggle. And you can even watch their physical demeanor kind of change in the dugout as it gets close to them on the batting order. They go from super excited to then, you know, maybe a little bit reserved, maybe a little bit less quiet, starting to get a little bit nervous. The kids that are really good at hitting, at hitting they kind of get a little bit more amped, a little bit more excited. But the ones that struggle, like by the time they get out of the dugout and they're on deck, like you can almost see it, that they're going to they're going to basically strike out before they even enter the batter's box. And I just, I, I feel for them. I, I feel for them because like that was me when I was a kid in Little League. Like if I was up the, up the bat, I was either watching three strikes go by or I was praying that I would get walked. Like, and that's probably why I was not a baseball guy growing up. But uh, I just remember being terrified. And, and you can still see that play out on Little League fields to this day. And, and it's just crazy to watch it because again, they've struck out before they've even seen the first pitch. And it's just, and it's a confidence thing. And so the coaches and the parents are doing everything they can to pump the kid up, to help him have some confidence to, look, you can do this, all right? You, you, you can do this. You can get a hit. You can make this happen. You can do this. You really, really can. You can do this. You've got it, right? All that is happening and being said to those, to, to the players as they're, as they're entering into the batter's box. It's in the opening verses of Second Peter where it just, feels like the apostle Peter is saying this very same thing to a group of Gentile Christians who are struggling in their faith. Now, this is his second letter to them. And in his first one, he wrote to them to encourage them in the face of persecution and in the face of suffering. Um, they were under threat from those outside the church who were suspicious of, of Christians and their faith. But in the second letter, Peter is writing to, to counter false teachers who have worked their way into the church, who have really crippled and undermined and eroded the faith of these believers. These teachers peddled a false doctrine that, that said believers had to have a certain special knowledge or a certain special doctrine or special insight that only the false teachers had. Uh, to, they had to access that same knowledge for, for people to be able to live out the true Christian way or the true Christian, Christian faith. But the problem is that what they were preaching wasn't Christian at all. It was heretical and blasphemous. And so it sows doubt in the believers' minds about the gospel and about their ability to live it out in their lives. And so these false teachers, they were damaging the church and threatening even more harm. Add to that, that Peter knows his death is imminent because he is imprisoned while he's writing this letter and it doesn't look good. He's going to die. And so this letter is really kind of his, his last of instructions to the church. It's his, his parting instructions, if you will. And so he's writing this letter to, to not only counter the false teachers and, their, and the bad influences on the church, but, but more so than anything, to give an assurance of their faith, an assurance of their calling, and to give confidence and motivation that, that even without Peter, they can continue to grow in their Christian character and they can live out the faith and the life that Christ had called them to live. It was, you, you can do this. You can do this regardless of these pressures that you are facing. And I think this is a fitting letter for us to study today. I really do. Now, maybe false teachers and false doctrines look different today than they did 2,000 years ago. But the ability to discern 
true from false teachers or, or maybe think good from bad influences on the church and the Christian faith, that's still a needed tool and skill for the Christ follower. But more than anything, I think when we look at the brokenness of the world around us, the challenges that we face in living out our faith, or maybe see all of our own failures and shortcomings, it can feel as though there's no way we should even make the attempt or to, to really genuinely, genuinely live out this faith and, and hold with it. And so when we give into that temptation or are given to those doubts and reservations, it's like we're striking out before we even see the first pitch. Oftentimes Christians can, if they don't have their confidence and their ability to hold on to or to live out the Christian faith, it can lead them to doubt the authenticity of their faith or maybe even tempt them to leave it altogether. And so I think this letter is helpful. It helps us know how to push back and fight back against those insecurities, uh, against those temptations. It is a letter that can help protect us against false teachers, personal doubts, and insecurities by calling us to take hope and courage and confidence in the grace of Jesus and the promises that he has given. Through Christ, we can know that, yes, we can do this. We can do this and live the life that he's called us to live. So I want us to look at it. I want us to see this together. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're just going to grab the first four verses today, and we're going to do work with this text. We're really going to dive into these four verses and kind of unpack them uh, a, a bit at a time. 2 Peter chapter 1, let's just grab the first verse, because then it will get uh, the author and the recipients of this letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So we know who it's written by. This is written by Simon Peter. Remember his backstory. He's an uneducated fisherman whom Jesus calls out of the boat and into a life of preaching, teaching, and witnessing about the good news of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a, that's a huge job, a huge job given to a fisherman from Capernaum. So do you think he might have carried some insecurities about, I don't know if I can really do this, right? I don't know if I can really lean into this call of Christ on my life. And, and so he's, he's stepping into that role. Now add to the fact that Peter wasn't exactly a straight A disciple, right? Like from the stories we have of Peter, we're given more of his failures than his successes. He's always opening his mouth when it should be closed, you know, making claims that he can't back up, and even on occasion trying to correct Jesus. So he's got some personal issues as well. He knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to have those insecurities, to have those failures, to have those doubts, and, and yet he's still going to be the one to write these words. And I actually think it gives him even more authority to write these words because he's, he's living this. He's lived this truth, and now he's, he's calling others into it as well. So we know this is written by Peter, but then look at how he describes himself. He says he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. Some of your translations might even say slave to Christ. Now that's something that should be applicable to every follower of Christ, that, that we consider ourselves servants of Christ, slaves to Christ. And so by introducing himself in this way first, he's basically saying, look, he's on equal footing with those who are receiving the letter and that he's just another servant of Jesus, another slave of Christ. But then he's going to follow that with an apostle of Jesus. And here Peter is... Um, uh, pulling rank on them, so to speak. Like he, he, and, and with it, more so than anything, it's kind of the first shot at some of these false teachers. He's reminding these early, Christ, these early Christians, hey, remember, Jesus appointed Peter to this role. 
this role of teaching, equipping, and equipping the church. And so Peter's like, I'm a servant of Jesus, but I'm also an apostle. So listen and heed these words that I'm about to write to you. And so we've got the author of this letter. Who are the recipients? Now we know from 1 Peter uh, that the recipients of, of this, of, second, of first and second Peter are a collection of churches uh, throughout the region that is now modern day Turkey. So with that, they are predominantly Gentile in background, which means they weren't raised Jewish. Many non-Jewish Christians struggled in the early days of the church for feeling like a second-class Christian. Now, that is a very generalized way of describing it, kind of the shorthanded version. But there was a tension in the early church about should people first convert to Judaism before they become a follower of Christ? Because after all, Jesus was uh, from the nation of Israel. He was a Jewish man himself. So do we, do, they need, do we need to convert to that first before we can follow Christ? And it was a big tension within the church. Now, it was resolved that no, you don't take that step. We just trust in Christ and Christ alone, that, that it is for any and all, whether you're Jewish or not, Gentile or, or, or whether you're Jewish or Gentile. So the church resolves that issue, but it was an issue for the early church. It, 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 they struggled for that for a while. And so that topic is popping up throughout many of the New Testament letters. And, and, and so you just know that background. And so with that, though, these Gentile Christians had this insecurity. Are they somehow second class? Are they somehow less than? And insecurity in a believer is what a false teacher is going to prey upon. Hey, I've got this special knowledge. I've got this special insight. If you just follow me, if you just trust in me, then, then, then you'll be fine. And so that's, that's a tension there. That's a trap there. And so right off the bat, what does Peter say to them? He says to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior Je- of God and Savior Jesus have received a faith as precious as ours. This, this isn't some special knowledge that the false teachers uh, or, or special knowledge from these false teachers, special insight from them. Our faith comes from the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. And your faith is the same as my faith. There's no difference. At the very start of his letter, Peter's like, look, I, I don't have a different savior. I don't have a different doctrine. I don't have a different salvation. We have the same. We both respond to the gospel and the truth of Christ. Your faith is just as precious, just as valuable, just as valid as mine. So remember, this is Peter the apostle, Peter the Jewish Christian, writing to non-Jewish Christians saying, look, we have the same precious faith. I didn't get anything more or less special than what you have received. And the reason that I spend so much time hammering this point is that this truth applies to us as well. We have the same faith as as the forerunners of our faith, right? Those who've gone before us and preached the gospel and lived the gospel and changed the world with that gospel. We don't have a different faith. We don't have a different story. We don't have a different savior. We don't have a different Messiah. We have the same faith that we all received from our righteous God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that absolutely should give us some confidence. It should. It should give us some confidence, some assurance, some courage, some conviction. We are part of the same stream that they were a part of. Through Christ, we have received a faith as precious as theirs. And so after this opening verse, Paul is going to give kind of an opening benediction, if you are, opening blessing on the church. He says this in verse two, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of of Jesus, our Lord. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through knowledge 
of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter is establishing the importance of knowledge in our faith. He is. He's not ignoring that. It is an important part of the faith. But these false teachers, again, were peddling. You had to have this certain knowledge that only they had to unlock secrets of the faith, to be able to have an inside track to spirituality or whatnot. But, but Peter here is rightly asserting the importance of knowledge in our faith, but that it's focused on knowledge of God the Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the knowledge we need to be focused in on. The more we grow in our knowledge of, of him, of who he is, of what he's done, of his commands on our life, the more we will know and experience the grace, his grace and peace in our life. I'm really kind of getting ahead of myself with that last sentence. But Peter is opening up this letter, letting us know that grace and peace is ours to be had and experienced through the knowledge of Jesus. And the knowledge that Peter speaks of here and will speak throughout his letter because he's going to use the word knowledge 13 times in this letter. It's not, it's not mere intellectual assent. It's not being able to regurgitate facts about Jesus or even like outline a doctrine about him. It includes those things. It includes those things, but it also incorporates practice with it. It's like when you learn a theory in a classroom, but then you apply it. You apply it to a case or to a patient or to a customer or to a client. Like you knew the theory ahead of time, but now you know why it's important or why it matters or how it's important. And so that type of knowledge is both a head knowledge and an experiential knowledge, if you will. And so throughout his letter, Peter is going to write of growing in our knowledge of Christ. It's growing in our doctrine, but it's also growing in our practice of that doctrine. It's, 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 it's enacting our faith. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through what? Not the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so these are the opening two verses. Now we're going to get into... Um, the start of the letter, and really we're in the deep end right off the bat. Now, these next two verses, let me just say this, they are grammatically complex, um, but we're going to come back and we're going to do work with it, And um, but you're a smart bunch. I think you'll get it on, on the first read through, but here we go. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, that's his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, the promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Okay, first off, he says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. This is huge. This is huge for us. We have everything we need for a godly life. When we place our faith in him, when we place our faith, we aren't lacking anything to be able to live the life that God calls us to live. So this means no more excuses. The excuses are gone. Okay, we can't say, I don't have the background, I don't have the education, I don't have the resources, I don't have the, the perspective, the morals, the virtues, the know-how, the capacity, the agency, the willpower. Okay, those excuses are gone. We don't have an excuse to point to for why we can't, because his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. If we feel like something is lacking, and let's be honest, there are plenty of times where it's like, I feel like something is lacking. Or we might even say, look, I'm not just feeling this. Like, I genuinely lack this. Well, what's the rest of the sentence? We have his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
Okay, so when those insecurities flare up, we can grow in our knowledge of Christ. That's the solution. When insecurities flare up, we grow in our knowledge of Christ, not in our self-awareness, not in our strengths, not in our personal development. I mean, those are good things to pursue. Those are right things to pursue. But when it comes to our faith, we need to know that, that foundationally, we have everything we need for, our, for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Through our knowledge of him, through our, our, our knowledge of who he is, what he's done, the commands that he has given, and our practice of those commands, and learning that, and implementing that in our life. We have everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Three times in this verse, our attention is drawn to Christ and not ourselves. His divine power, knowledge of him, caused by his glory and goodness. And so our capacity, hear me on this, our capacity for a godly life It's not dependent upon ourselves, but dependent upon who he is, what he's done, and the grace he's poured out. Now, next week, we're going to get to uh, our role in it, and and, and there is a role that we have to play in it, and and, and how we participate in it, and how we uh, actively um, engage this in our lives. But foundationally, we need to know, again, that our capacity for a godly life, not dependent upon ourselves, but dependent on who he is what he's done, and the grace he's poured out. That's why we have everything we need because we've been given Christ. We've been given Christ, and we've been given Christ not because we're awesome or not because God's like, you aren't, no, we've been given Christ because of his glory, because of his goodness, because of his mercy, because of his grace. And it was out of that glory and goodness that he gives us great and precious promises. That's in the verse four. He's given us great and precious promises for our faith. Jesus and his love, mercy, and grace, he gives promises to his people about our salvation, about life, about power, and, and, and purpose. And, and those are just some of them, right? Like we know that when we place our faith in him, God's word says he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He promises us salvation. Jesus says that when we come to him, we can have life and have life to the full. We're promised that we can discover life in him, in and through Jesus Jesus promised to his people the power, the wisdom, the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within the hearts and lives of the followers of Jesus to guide our steps, uh, to convict us of sin, to stir within us a thirst for righteousness and his kingdom. We are promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands us to be witnesses of his gospel and to tell all the good news of his kingdom. So we're, we're promised an eternal purpose to guide our day-to-day living. Jesus also promised that he will come again and establish his perfect kingdom here on earth. And with that, there'll be no more pain, no more heartache, no more false teachers, no more suffering. We are promised the kingdom of God, and that gives to us a theology of hope even amidst the brokenness of this world. Right? I could just laid out just a handful of some of those promises, but these are all the great and precious promises that are given to us through Christ that then enables us enables us to participate in the divine nature. We can participate in the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that you become God, like participate in the divine nature in that way. It doesn't doesn't mean that we become a a God or anything like that. But this is Peter talking about how this is how we we, we grow in our Christ-like character. We participate in God's ongoing work in this world that's both happening in our lives and in the world around us. And with this, this is how we, our, our character will one day be perfected in and with his kingdom, in and through his kingdom. But what you're, I hope you see it building here, right? These are the, through the promises of Christ, 
We can participate in the divine nature. And when we understand that promise and that's our focus, then we're going to escape the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. Because we don't want the temple. We, 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 don't, we don't want that which is less than. We don't want that which is against God, his purpose, his virtues, or his commands. We escape those desires because we're clinging to the promises of Christ, participating in the divine nature in this world, the divine work in this world, growing in our knowledge of him, and in so doing, living a godly or God-oriented life. And as it turns out, he's given us everything we need in order to do just that. This is Peter telling the first century Christians and telling you and me that really, through Christ, you can do this. You can do this. Don't strike out before you see the first pitch. Don't be beaten before you ever step up to the plate. We are on the side of the victor. We are aligned with him, called by him, equipped by him to be able to live a godly life and participate in the work that he is doing in this world. We just, we've got to have the confidence and the boldness to do it. We've got to have the confidence and the boldness to actually do it. Now hear me on this. I am 1,000% anti-name-it-and-claim-it theology. I, I am. I am anti-name-it-and-claim-it theology when it comes to health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preaching. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there are kind of these preachers out there that are like, you know, you can say, God, I, I claim that you're going to give me the car, the house, and the spouse, and I, and I claim it in Jesus' name, and you're going to give it to me, right? That's garbage. That's junk. That's false doctrine, false teaching that is running amok, uh, or specifically among American evangelicalism, all right? Soundly reject that, but I do wholeheartedly feel like so many Christians fail to rightly name the promises that we've been given by Christ, fail to rightly name the promises that we've been given by God's word and claim them, apply them to their lives, live them uh, and, and live them out. And to me, this is one of them. This is one of the big ones. And I mean, it kind of encompasses all of the promises. But with this, Peter is emphatically telling these early Christians, you can do this. You, you can do this. I, I know there are all these pressures on you from outside the church or, from, or, or even from, with, from within. I know you feel like you are lacking in every way. I know it seems like God is asking so much of you in stewarding the gospel, tending to the health of these churches and ensuring that they thrive. I know it's a scary thing to follow Christ in this setting in such a tumultuous time, but his divine power has given us everything we need. His glory and goodness has given us these great and precious promises so that we can participate in the divine. Trust in them. Hold on to them. Live them out. And when you do, you participate in God's ongoing work in your life and in the world around you. You can do this. You can do this. These two verses, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, and, and along with the section that we're going to be in next week, th this is a passage of scripture that put me into ministry. I, I, I'm not talking about like full-time vocational ministry. That, that kind of came years later. But these were a few verses that God helped me to see and just convicted me with that he has called every follower, every follower of Christ. He has called every believer to be engaged and participate in what he is doing in this world. And it was seeing the truth of these verses that's like, my excuses are gone. He's given everything that we need to do this. 
And when we do this, we get to participate in the things of him. Yes, yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to have my mind blown as I watch and see how God works and how God moves in ways I can't explain. And, and, and so it, 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 it moved me into, into ministry with the job I was working at the time. And it was, again, before full-time vocational ministry. But it's, 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 it's a passage that calls us into it. And, and I think this is also an invitation to those, to, it shows that it's open to even those who aren't a follower of Christ, because maybe some of you are feeling like, I'm, I can't give him my yes. I can't say yes to following Christ, because maybe you feel like you don't measure up, or you're not going to be able to, to live this out the way that, that you think that you should be able to live this out. But what this passage is telling us, again, is this, this is all, okay, this is all dependent upon him, his power, his glory, his goodness, his promises that we can trust in him, live for him, and join him in his work. And so it's an invitation to you as well that, yes, we really get to do this. You can do this because of who Christ is and what he's done. So again, don't be defeated before you begin. Don't strike out before you get to the plate. Give him your yes, whether you're trusting in him for the very first time for salvation or trusting him for the thousandth time with your direction and calling in your life. Now, I get it. I, I, I get it. I know there's fear and I know there's insecurity over failures, regrets, mistakes, maybe not feeling like you're equipped enough or developed enough or mature. I, I get all that. And you might be thinking, who am I to think that I could actually be a follower of Christ? Or who am I to think that I could actually have a ministry in my office or in my dorm room or in my classroom? And you think there's no way I can pull this off. So you don't even make the attempt. And I'm telling you again, that's a no before you even begin. These verses, these verses telling us his divine power is giving us everything we need. Giving us everything. Through Christ, you can do this. Give him that yes. And I get there's hesitation over, I don't know enough about Jesus, his words, his commands to do this. So it doesn't need to be me. I don't need to be the one to do this. Again, he's given us everything we need through our knowledge of him. So if you feel that insecurity, then as you begin to do the work, grow in your knowledge of him and you'll experience the great, his grace and peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, you can do it. Through Christ, you can do this. But I will tell you this, you won't grow in your knowledge of him if you say no to his calling. Okay, you, you, you won't grow in your knowledge of his grace and peace if you say no to his commands. You won't grow in your knowledge and practice of the faith if you are content to sit on the sidelines and wonder what it, must, what, what it must be like for those who are engaged in the work. I'm telling you, I'm begging you, know these words of Peter, claim them, apply them to your life and let them give you the boldness to give God your yes, and to know that through Christ, you can do what God has called you to do. It is another example of the grace of Jesus. It is Jesus's grace to us that enables us to live godly lives that are built upon his promises. And as such, we see and we know the truth that his divine power really has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, and his glory and goodness. Let me pray for us. God, we love you, and we thank you for the verses of this epistle that, that, that can give to us such a confidence that, that our faith, our attempt at a godly life is not dependent upon ourselves, but is dependent upon you, and you have given us everything we need for a godly life. Your glory and your goodness lead to, to promises 
that we can bank on, that we can trust, that we can know, that we can then apply to our life to give us the confidence that we are being caught up and participate in the things of you, both the work you're doing in our life, the work you want to do in and through our lives. And so God, help us, help us to walk with the boldness and the confidence that these truths apply to us. It's the same faith that we have received that Peter received. It's the same truths that, that have been passed down, Lord God, that our faith, our hope, our trust, our power, our boldness, our conviction, it is dependent upon you and your promises to us. So God, may that be what anchors us. May that be where we take our hope. May that be what transforms how we live and lead us to give you our yes for the first time and for the thousandth time, to give you our yes and do so with full confidence, boldness, and conviction and trust in these great and precious promises that through them we can participate in the things of you. God, we love you and we thank you for this encouraging word from this letter. God, we love you and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.